and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. There's no bride more lovely than Christ's bride. And I can say that with confidence knowing that my own bride is here and knows that I've said that. Because Christ's bride is lovely because of Christ Himself. It's what He gives to His church that makes us, His bride, lovely. And any infirmities that we might see in the church of Christ are attributed only to its human members and the corruption that we bring to the table. It's not Him. Everything that He does and produces in His people is absolutely perfect and beautiful. The Lord God looks down upon it and delights in it. But then there are those things that we bring that make it difficult. The local church is the supreme institution on earth. The church will outlast every other institution. It will outlast your family. It will outlast this nation. It is the supreme institution. Ultimately, it takes preeminence over all of these other institutions because it's a manifestation of Christ's kingdom on the earth, the only eternal kingdom. And we see throughout the Scriptures that the pattern of the present age is that kingdoms will continuously rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall while Christ's kingdom is always on the advance, always growing and taking the preeminence over these other institutions. Life in the local church is glorious and life in the local church is hard. Sometimes in church life are very great. Sometimes in church life are very difficult. I think just looking back on this past week, it's sort of perfectly captured, in my mind at least, these dynamics that we see in the life of the local church. You've got struggles, difficulties, heartbreak. You've got sorrow. You add on top of that the sickness that has been in pretty much every household that I know of. But then at the same time, right there, almost in the middle of it, you have two of our own number who are coming together and and, uh, joining hands in marriage. And so there's this rejoicing and there's this celebration. And so the hardship is sprinkled with joy. And at the same time, the rejoicing is stained with a little bit of a heaviness of heart. And usually, this is what I'm coming to, to learn and to understand, that usually the worst thing that you can do in times like these is just move on as if nothing has happened. And just say, well, God is sovereign and we're just going to plow through. I think the best thing to do is turn as a congregation, not everyone separately, although that ought to be happening, but as we come together as a congregation, turning to the Word of God together and in a united attempt, look and see what God's Word says about particular matters. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I have no idea what's going on, and I'm really just sort of confused up until this point. Well, by the end of the day, if you're here for the whole day, you'll understand what what I'm talking about. Here's the plan. This morning I want to look at the entirety of Matthew chapter 18. So we're just going to walk through the whole chapter together. This evening we'll come back together and I want to deal specifically with verses 15 to 20 and the matter of church discipline. 
and then we will as a church move into our own uh, work of discipline with a matter in our own congregation. Now typically, as I've read and understood, there were churches who would say you should never do discipline, carry out discipline matters in a worship service. And I'll read a quote tonight. That stuff should be saved for a different meeting when you can just have the members together and you don't have anyone there who's not a member. Uh, we don't typically uh, have meetings like that. And, I, and to be honest, there's something deep down that makes me wonder if we called a separate meeting other than the Lord's Day, if everybody would even come. If, they would, if anybody would see it as significant to be there. And so at this point in our church life, we deal with these things on the Lord's Day. Why have I chosen this approach? Why am I taking the time to look through an entire chapter and then come back in the evening and focus in on a particular point when really the goal of the day is really that particular point at the end? Well, several reasons. First, anything that the apostles say in the New Testament about the church and church discipline is actually an exposition and an expounding and an application of what Jesus says here. What Christ said about discipline here comes in the context of an entire discourse about life in the church. And I think that too often church discipline is considered as the preeminent staple of a strong church. If you're strong, you practice discipline. Rarely are these other traits of a healthy church considered alongside of discipline. And everybody's got their idea about how many marks or traits there are of a healthy church. I believe that here in Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus puts all of this together for us in one place. He focuses on discipline, but there are many other things in church life that are centered around discipline and, again... I believe that everything we see in the New Testament after this is merely the apostles taking this particular discourse and opening it up and applying it to particular cases. And so we come to what has been called by some, Matthew chapter 18, the ecclesiastical discourse. It's one of five discourses that we have in Matthew's gospel. Dealing specifically with matters as they'll play out in the life of the local church and there are a lot of people, I've mentioned this before, there are a lot of people who don't really see the significance of what we call the local church in the New Testament because they don't see that phrase, local church. They don't see covenant membership. And so they, they struggle to see it. I would argue that the New Testament, including this discourse, as I hope to show you, doesn't make sense apart from what we call the local church and covenant membership in that church. In other words, rather than being laid out, it's assumed and understood, just like in our culture, if you're a part, if you have a gym membership, if you've got a golf membership, if you work a job, there is an agreement that comes along with everything we enter into in life because there are expectations on both sides coming into it. It's just assumed. But I want to show you the, the language of ecclesiology first. In verse 1 of this chapter, we see the, the, this, this phrase, At that time, the disciples. We know from the New Testament that the disciples are the foundation of the New Testament church. 
And multiple times in the Gospels, we see that the disciples, the twelve apostles, are addressed as if they are representative of the whole New Testament church. Twelve of them matching with the twelve tribes of Israel, representing the people of God in all ages, the covenant people. They are sort of the, the foundation, the, the carpet ring being rolled out of this new covenant community. And we would say, well, hasn't the church always existed? Yes. And that's what makes the New Testament especially special, is when we come to the New Testament, there's no more uh, significance placed on coming to Jerusalem, but the concept, the historical concept of the synagogue in various locations, that is what takes the preeminence in the concept of the local church, the local gatherings of the people of God. But these disciples are often treated as sort of representative of that New Testament church. In verse 6 we see the, these words, these little ones. In verse 10, these little ones. Verse 14, my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones, the, the language of children, of sibling saints, we'll see also in verse 15 the reference to your brother, verse 21, my brother, verse 35, your brother. We know later on the Apostle John references churches as little children. The picture is these are Christians. And they're addressed, brothers, using the language of siblings within a family. Brothers within a family share a different relationship than even first cousins. And especially people who are not related at all. So we have this, this the, the language of addressing the disciples along with this familial language of brothers and little ones. In verse 17, he explicitly says, look back at verse, yeah, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, the ecclesia, the, the called out assembly. Verse 23, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. And we know that more often than not in the Gospels, the language of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is not looking forward to the eternal state of the kingdom, but it's the present state of the reign of Christ, which is manifested primarily in the local church. Now the church itself is not the kingdom. And the kingdom itself is not the church. But many of the things that we see descriptive of the kingdom of heaven in this age apply specifically to the work of the church and Christ by His Spirit through the church in the present age. Now somebody can hear all that and they can say, well, couldn't most of those, other than the explicit reference to the church, couldn't most of these apply beyond the confines of a particular church? And the answer is yes, they could. But even then, they have to start within a particular church amongst the members of that congregation. As we see in the Ten Commandments with telling children to honor their father and mother and the expectation that that submission to those, those closest authorities expands out to every realm of God-given authority. So here, we would say, well, yeah, it would apply to brothers and sisters of other churches who are Christians, but primarily it begins in your church, and some of these things that Christ commands 
couldn't be expected of every member of every church as they look out to other members of other churches. And so addressing his disciples as representative of the new covenant community and as the foundation of that community, which for us is the local church, Jesus Christ, the only Lord and head of the church, is here going to enumerate six traits which must characterize a healthy church. As per usual, our Lord captures the entirety of biblical wisdom on a particular subject in one discourse. He covers every bit of it. I would, again, suggest you can't find anything beyond this in the New Testament that cannot be traced to what He said and taught here. He summarizes it all with a wisdom that is incomprehensible. Pastors and teachers have spent almost 20 centuries, over 19 centuries, unpacking and expounding and teaching this in churches for generation after generation after generation. But our Lord packs it all here. And I really do think that meditation upon this chapter and its implications and the applications would be healthy for every church member. From time to time, come back to Matthew chapter 18, read through it and ask, what does this have to say to me as a member of a church? Six traits. Humility, righteousness, compassion, reconciliation, Discipline, forgiveness. Six traits that must characterize every local church. Humility, righteousness, compassion, reconciliation, discipline, forgiveness. Now before I open them up, just take note. Discipline is only one out of six. One. And I'll also point out this and hopefully show this as we move forward. That each of these builds on one another. They, they, they build. It's, it's like a tower or, or stair steps. No single one of these traits is exclusively preeminent. And no one trait can be discarded without destroying the whole thing. It's a complete discourse from the mouth of Christ. So the first thing we see is humility. And I didn't mention this earlier, but I do want to say this. And I, the men who get together and have gotten together in the past to discuss matters of preaching and things like that, one of the things that we say often is when you're coming to preach, you're not coming to deliver a book report. You're not coming to say, here's what I found. I'm going to give it to you and sit down. But when, when you're preaching the Word, you're actually entering into a what is verbally a one-sided monologue, but verbally and non-verbally a two-sided interaction. In other words, as we walk through these, I'm talking to you. So listen, and as you would if anybody were talking to you. Listen, hear what is said. When I say things like we and you, I'm not talking about any other church. I'm talking about this church. I have written and prepared all of this, as I always do, with this congregation in mind. So when I say we, I mean we. And you should ask, is he talking about me? Number one, humility. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Humility precedes 
everything else. Apart from this foundation, the whole thing crumbles. The first thing we see is the situation which gives rise to this discourse. Verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now when we read that we might think, seems innocent enough. They're just interested. They're learning about the kingdom. They probably imagine this hierarchy just like every kingdom. And so it's just a simple question. We want to know how the kingdom of heaven works. But if you look at the parallel account in Mark's gospel, it says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Matthew doesn't include that information. Perhaps because Matthew was one of them. Yeah. Maybe. In Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. So the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, comes after they had been arguing about that very thing. Reasoning in their hearts about that issue. So, so get this picture in your mind. They had been arguing amongst themselves about which of them was the greatest. They're arguing about it. Each of them, if we assume that every one of them was involved separately, would have been putting his own name forward and the reasons why it was him. Here's why I'm the greatest. And the other one goes, no... Here's why I'm the greatest. And then another. No, here's why I'm the greatest. And around the circle. Maybe they got into teams. Several of them got behind Peter. Several got behind James. Several got behind John. And they began to pit these men against one another. Here's my vote for Peter. I mean, he clearly has this trait. Well, no, here's my vote for James because of this. Well, here's my vote for John. I mean, it's clear that Christ loves John differently than He treats the rest of us or loves the rest of us. Here's my vote for John. They're arguing about which is the greatest and Christ, it says, knew their hearts. He knew the reasoning of their hearts. The, The reasoning inside themselves. I'm the greatest because this. No, that's not right about Him. If it is, I'm actually the greatest because of this. Their reasoning within themselves. Each man is examining himself and in his mind running through the catalog of the things that he believed to be great about himself. He would have been reasoning about this or that particular trait in him. That was better than that trait or the lack thereof in one of the others. Or he would have heard another man say, well, well, I have this gift. And then he would have thought, yeah, but you also do this and this and therefore you can't be the greatest. Reasoning why the other wasn't as great as he really thought he was. If they weren't coming out and expressly saying, you're not as good as me, they were at least 
thinking in a way that depreciated the others by thinking highly of themselves. That's the situation that gives rise to this discourse that has come to be called the ecclesiastical discourse or the discourse dealing with matters in the church. Why? Because two things. Number one, pride is the natural tendency of every human heart. That is our natural baseline thinking is pride. And secondly, because pride amongst a group of Christians, and especially a church, will destroy them all. It will ruin that church. Pride. Any time that there's a way of thinking that says, it's, it's actually acceptable for me, to spend time not only examining myself to see what is good about me, but also comparing that to what is not good in others, or considering what is bad in others over against what is good in me, that is satanic. That must be crushed. I do it this way and they don't. I do this and they don't. Well, they're always doing this and I would never do that. Comparison. It's pride. It's got to be crushed. We've been commanded in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition. The desire to put yourself forward or conceit. Even with the thought that this makes you look good or promotes you or that this is good in me that I'm doing this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the reasoning that ought to be taking place in the hearts of Christians in a church. Reasoning how you can count somebody else more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here's what we're commanded to do. Count other people more significant. Other people are more significant than me. Count them that way. Look to the interests of others. Engage yourself. Occupy yourself with what would benefit other people. So we see that the attitude that the disciples were, were showing here was contrary to Christ Himself. Paul says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he explains how Christ displayed the attitude of humility. Christ did it. What they're doing is completely anti-Christ. They're working, they're doing the very opposite of their master. We do the very opposite of our master when we elevate ourselves with Pride, And this, this wouldn't do amongst the disciples. If it, it exists in a church, it won't do. Those who have this prideful, juxtaposing attitude. Juxtaposes to put two things beside each other in order to make a comparison. Those who have a juxtaposing attitude. Me versus that person. That person versus me. Their way of doing it versus my way of doing it. Their way of thinking versus my way of thinking. Just everything is this way. Those who have this prideful, juxtaposing attitude that examines themselves in light of others or examines others in light of themselves 
are a cancer in any church. Most often those who have this mindset have this mindset because they don't know God's word, which is the standard by which we are to be measuring ourselves. Not others, but God's word. But being ignorant of the revelation of God and unwilling to compare themselves with the mirror of God's word, they set themselves up as God and then they begin to judge people. Here's the standard of righteousness. It's me. That can't continue in a healthy church. That destroys churches. And so at this point, the Lord employs an analogy, sort of an object lesson in verses 2 to 4. It says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you've got a problem and you need to turn, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we understand children come out of the womb sinful. Children can be prideful. Children can get together and try to show strength and compare one another to boast in themselves. But think about this child. He's been called to and physically placed in the midst of a gathering of 13 adult men. As far as we know, none of them is his father. Take a stand here. All of these men are looking at this child. Jesus says, look at this child. Now imagine our young children, how would they respond? More than likely, they would hide their faces. They would bury their faces in our, in our leg or behind us. This kid probably looked around and very quickly buried his face in the bosom of Jesus. He didn't want to make eye contact. He didn't want to see, want these men to see him blushing or maybe even welling up in tears. He would have known, this is not my, I'm out of my element here. This is not where I belong. That's the image that our Lord wants stamped on the eyeballs of his disciples. Anytime they begin to run or return to that self-exalting, others-belittling mindset, you've got to turn and be like this. Not promoting yourself. Not lifting up yourself. Not looking at others and examining. You've got to be like this. What's implied in the lesson? Whoever humbles himself. Here it's, it's laid out as a, an accusative. A description. Whoever does this. Elsewhere in scripture it's given as a command. For example, 1 Peter 5.6 Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time He may exalt you. Humble yourselves. It's a command. Bring yourself down in your thinking and in your eyes, in your self-perception. Now think about this. That was Peter. Peter was the one who said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And at the right time, He'll exalt you. This is the one who had not humbled himself, who said, though they all fall away from you, greatest in the kingdom of heaven, I'll never fall away from you. I'm with you to death. Jesus said, well, you'll deny me three times. And he did. And then later Christ restores him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He learned this lesson, this valuable lesson, that if we are to be of service to Christ and His church, then we must become low in our own eyes, low in our thinking, and then we will be made useful. God will exalt at the right time. 
If anyone refuses to humble themselves and they truly belong to Christ, He will humble them. And it won't be pretty. And I read this almost like Peter saying, listen, take my word for it. Humble yourself. You don't want to be humbled. Humble yourself. Once Peter had been humbled and was low in his own eyes, he was fit for service. James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 4, 6, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If pride remains in you, you are in opposition to God, and God is in opposition to you. He's against you. But those who will humble themselves will receive grace, power from God to serve in His kingdom. He'll give that to those who come low, not to those who exalt themselves. Here's the underlying motivation in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That phrase, one such child, is a reference to one such Christian who had turned and humbled themselves. It's talking about a believer, the humble believer. Why should we feel motivated to humility in the church? I'm telling you, you've got to humble yourself. You ask, oh, why should I humble myself? Because Christ so identifies with His humble saints that the way you treat them, He takes that as you treating Him that way. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The way you treat them is the way you treat me. That's what he's saying. You depreciate others, either outwardly or in your mind. Think of others lower than yourself. Christ says, you're thinking of me. I'm taking that as the way that you would think of me. If we want to oppose God... And continue contrary to Christ, then we can exalt ourselves and remain high in our own eyes. But if we want the grace of God, if we want to continue in solidarity and communion with Christ, then we must humble ourselves. When we have humbled ourselves, only then will we rightly know how to deal with others in the church. When we've humbled ourselves. When we humble ourselves, we'll realize that these other people in the church, they're not business partners. These other people in the church, they're not those who decided to be where I am on Sundays. They're not thorns in my flesh. They're blood-bought saints of Christ. And the way that we talk to them and treat them and think about them, He says, you're doing it to me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me, he says. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's an intimate knowledge between Christ and His sheep. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock. One shepherd, one blood-bought flock, shepherded by a bloody shepherd. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, when the chief shepherd appears. Nobody in this room is a chief shepherd. Not one of us. At best, we might have under-shepherds. 
stewards of the flock. Nobody in this room is the chief shepherd. When we deal with one another, we are dealing with Christ's sheep. Not our own sheep. Christ's sheep. Christian submission or humility in every aspect of life is a fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 5 Verse 18 and verse 21, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, The love that should characterize every local church, Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love, it is not arrogant. It does not inflate one in their own thinking to the point where they scorn others. Humility comes from an ever-increasing experiential knowledge of God. Not history, not men, not doctrines. God. You know God, you start getting low. We fill up with knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. We're learning, we're learning, we're learning. But it's puffing us up. It's because it's not a knowledge of God. Whatever it might be, it's not leading to God. Because the closer we get to God, and the more we understand who God is, you will humble yourself. And as you humble yourself, you'll learn how to treat Christ's sheep. And you'll learn how to treat them as more significant than yourself. So that's the first trait of a healthy church. Humility amongst the members. Secondly, in verses 6 to 9, we see the next trait, righteousness. Righteousness, or we could also call it moral uprightness. We could call it practical holiness. We could call it godliness. <clears throat> if there is to be a healthy church, there must be a unanimous expectation that is amongst all of the members that regeneration by the Spirit of God produces an ever-increasing godliness in one's life. The standard of practical righteousness, being good in the things that you do every day, is always going to go up and increase by the one that's been born again. That's an understanding that we must have. It doesn't start at the climax. We start as infants. But there will be growth. In holiness. Now that godliness or that righteousness as we, we know, I think, is it works itself out in a twofold manner. There is spurning sin, putting away sin. As you increase in godliness, as you increase in righteousness, that means you hate sin and you're putting it away practically. Sins you once committed, you are no longer committing. And there's also a putting on of the practical righteousness. Things that you used to not do, you're beginning to do. Works of godliness. That's what this righteousness looks like. Putting off sin, putting on righteousness. Now in this passage, the Lord deals primarily with that first negative aspect of righteousness, which is a vehement antagonism towards sin in every form. So we could say that a local church, a healthy church, will be characterized by a vehement antagonism toward sin in every form. So after stating that solidarity that he has with every saint in verse 5, in a positive light, whoever receives one such child receives me. Then he addresses that same thing in a negative light. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see the, the opposites. To receive one is to receive me. But to cause one to sin is to deserve and earn for yourself a punishment worse than drowning. He's basically, basically saying it would be better just to be dead than to do that. But why is it? Why is that? Well, it's because sin is lawlessness. And God hates sin. God hates lawlessness. The chief shepherd does not take it lightly when practical holiness in his sheep is obstructed in any way. He does not toy with sin. Now the way that this is explained in verses 7 to 9 just sort of adds to the graphic imagery of this discourse. Throughout this section, he uses we see this phrase... Causes to sin, and sometimes they're separated in the paragraph, but it's still one word in verse 5. Causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That, that causes to sin, it's one word. Later on in the verse, temptation, same word. Verse 8, causes you to sin, one word. Verse 9, causes you to sin, same word. They're all the same word. Scandal on, you can hear the word scandal there. It means to put something in someone's path. Like a stumbling block. They're walking along and you put something in their way to slow them down. Or you put a stick out to trip them up. It means to trip someone up in their Christian walk. To do something, anything, that becomes the occasion of the sin of another. To do something which brings a faltering in their following of Christ. He says, if you do that, it'd be better just to die. Now here's a reality that we have to come to terms with. In the church, as it is with the rest of life, you can be the occasion of the stumbling of someone else. You can. We have to remove ourselves from this mindset that says... Well, if they sin, that's their sin. That's on them. That's their problem. That's not Christian. You can be the cause of somebody else's sin. Now, will they be judged for their sin? Sure. Are they responsible? Sure. And you are as well. For your participation. Because you put a stumbling block in their path. Jesus said, it'd be, re it'd be better just to die than to do that. This is true especially in the church. Because we're so acquainted with one another. We get so familiar with one another. We spend so much time together. The things that we're doing, the overarching aim of our gathering and our work and our service is so big and so monumentous, so universally important. Each of us plays such a vital member in that church, in this church. Our actions are so intertwined with one another that it's all the more dangerous in the context of a church that we have to watch ourselves and watch how we act. As I said the other week, we are all in some way taking a part in this discipleship process. The church is the disciple-making unit of Christ and every one of us has a part to play. We're all discipling. We're all leading others. We're adding to it. 
Maybe you're, you're verbalizing the teaching. Maybe somebody else is not saying anything, but in their, their lifestyle, they are adorning that teaching with a practical example that comes together before the eyes of another believer so that they are discipled. I hear it and I see it. This is making perfect sense. Everybody has a part to play. And therefore, we have a very grave potential to become a stumbling block to somebody else. A very high potential to, rather than build up, we tear down. Or at least become a stumbling stone. Rather than pushing people toward Christ, at best, we slow them down. At worst, we pull them back. Jesus said, you'd be better off dead than do that. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Why would it be better for you to be dead than to be found guilty of causing one of Christ's sheep to sin? Because of the heinous nature of sin. God hates sin. We have a low view of sin. We have a knack for justifying ourselves and our sins. We're experts at defending our actions and our thoughts and our opinions and our perspectives. We're good at it. I think with the prevalency of not only printed material, but especially social media, we now have the ability, with very little effort, to pick from a multitude of opinions coming from a multitude of men and make that opinion our own and feel justified because, well, that man believes it. We would justify ourselves. Again, we're comparing ourselves with men rather than with God. This past year, I was reminded of all of the things I would typically not engage myself in. All the things that are perfectly acceptable because Spurgeon. Spurgeon did it. Yeah. Since when do I care what Spurgeon did? God is my standard. God is Spurgeon's standard. Spurgeon will answer to God for Spurgeon. I will answer to God for Paul and my family. But this is how we do. Scramble to find an opinion. Who believed this? Who believed this? Give me somebody of some credit that believed this thing. Boom. Justified. In my actions. We've not considered God's word. Low view of sin, a knack for justifying ourselves, experts at defending our actions. The Lord illustrates the severity of sin in this way. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. You see what he's, he's getting at? You hold on to sins, you're going to hell. It'd be better to get rid of it. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It would be better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, I do think that he's using hyperbole but he's explaining the severity of sin and the intensity with which we must approach it in killing it. It's this important. And he chooses hands 
and feet and eyes, arguably the most valuable assets of the human body to accomplish any task in this life, he says, these things are not worth keeping if they cause you to sin. Sin is that deadly. Get rid of it. You don't want hands and hell. You don't want feet and hell. You don't want eyes and hell. Get rid of an eye. Get rid of a foot. Get rid of a hand. Whatever it takes, get rid of the sin. Take the most extreme measures possible to get rid of sin. And it's worth it. Why? Because sin is so deadly. What good are hands and feet and eyes in hell? Sin cannot be tolerated in the church. It cannot be tolerated. Now, this begins with our own personal sins. It begins with my hands, my feet, my eyes. Every individual Christian has to be about the business of examining their own iniquity and dealing with their own sins decisively. Now, notice how that is exactly the opposite of what the disciples were doing. They were, they were capitalizing on their good traits. What made them the greatest? Christ says, you need to stop and think about your sins and how dangerous your sins are. They were assessing their goodness. Christ says, assess your sins. As He said in Matthew 7, 5, first, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How quickly do we move past that very simple teaching because we all know it. We think, six months ago I learned that Matthew 7.1 doesn't mean that I can't judge people. And therefore I can completely ignore Matthew 7.5 which says, take the log out of your eye first. We never get so reformed that we don't have logs in our eyes. Take it out of your eye first. Deal with yours first. Romans 2.1 In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, you made yourself the judge, practice the very same things. Well, no, I don't. You've got a log in your eye. You're having trouble seeing. You practice the very same things. Now, we might not do exactly the same thing, but we know that there's nothing new under the sun. And at root, there is no new sin under the sun. When we're guilty of the very same sin... We're usually very good and very fast at noticing it in others. Because it's our own sin. It's, it's before our mind all the time. We know that it's there and so we very quickly spot it in other people. When you have found repentance from that same sin, then we become capable of dealing with it in others in humility. Now that doesn't mean that you have to have experience in a particular sin to address it in someone else. But having gone through repentance and the guilt from a particular sin, you then become equipped to deal with that in, a, in another person in a very special way, a humble way, a tender way. We've got to begin with our own sins first. But the same principle is true in the church. Now, I've not read anybody else who makes this analogy or this comparison, and so it might be wrong. But the church is a body. The church has hands, the church has feet, the church has eyes. This is the ecclesiastical discourse. So we could learn here, and I think from elsewhere, that when there is ongoing unrepentant sin within the body, 
It's deadly to the whole body. So it has to be dealt with. Cut it off. Cut that hand off. Cut that foot off. Cut that eye off. But we need these, we need these parts. Not with that sin, you don't. We see examples of this illustrated in, in the Old Covenant and things like the leprosy laws. Leprosy was a disease that it infected everything, and once it was discovered, the leprosy had to be removed, or the leper had to be removed from the camp. Sorry, you gotta go. Well, my wife and kids are in there. Sorry. They can come visit you, but you can't come in here. Why? Because you're going to defile the assembly of God. It's a picture of sin. There were certain sins in Israel that were deserving of capital punishment. Why? To show that God vehemently opposed sin and that sin must be purged from among the people of God. We, it will not be allowed to continue. Achan is the supreme example that comes to our minds. Nadab and Abihu were killed to show God's not going to tolerate false worship. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are killed to show God's not going to tolerate liars in His congregation. In 1 Corinthians 5, the adulterer is removed from the church. Why? Purge the evil from your midst. I'm not going to tolerate that in my assembly. God hates sin. And a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. When sin is allowed to continue and fester amongst God's people, it only spreads and produces more sin. That could be more of the same sin, or it might be more of a different sin, like murmuring, or gossip, or slander, or complaining about the leadership and how things are being handled. Sin left unaddressed spreads produces more sin. Now, does all of this mean that there's only room for perfect people in the church? Of course not. Being intolerant of sin doesn't mean that it's been completely eradicated. It means that wherever sin exists, it's opposed. At the individual level first, and then at the corporate level, as sins are exposed and brought to, the, uh, brought to light. A healthy church will be characterized by a pursuit of righteousness, specifically putting away and avoiding sin. But that can't be done apart from the first trait of humility. There must be a humility as we deal with sins. Where there is no humility, any addressing of a sin, especially a public sin, is pure hypocrisy. It's an attempt to uncover someone else's sin in order to appear godly, while the whole time you're harboring your own pride. It's, it's reasoning within yourself as to who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'll take their leg out. They're, they're running. They're in the running for the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'll take his leg out and reveal a sin. And who's left standing? So it has to be approached with humility and righteousness must characterize a church. Thirdly, we come to the matter of compassion. Compassion, verses 10 through 14. Compassion is defined as sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. The word literally means to suffer together with someone. To have compassion for someone is to put yourself in their shoes, specifically with regard to their suffering or their misfortune, and then act for them, to help them. 
That's what we see in the next section. It comes again in a negative form all throughout this discourse. He's addressing that attitude that the disciples had from the beginning. And so he brings in another negative in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. That's the negative. The opposite would be have compassion. The compassion is displayed in the parable. The command is stated negatively here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Give careful attention to this. See that you. Give your mind to be careful that you're doing this particular thing. See that you do not despise. The word means literally downthink. Or think down of. Or think down upon. Give careful attention to your thoughts to make sure that you are not thinking down about, on, of one of these little ones. Now what goes into thinking down on someone? Thinking down of someone? (coughs) Think about it. There's self-exaltation in your own mind so that when you consider somebody else, you think of them in some way as lower than you. And, and, and this could be in many different ways. You might not be cognizant of a distinction that you're making. You might not think, how am I great and how are they less and now I'll think about it. It might not happen that way. But you've elevated yourself in your own mind or you've lowered them in your own mind and so that when you think about them, you have to think down upon them. Jesus said, see that you do not despise, think down upon one of these little ones. And the emphasis now is on this this word one. Just like in verse 5, Christ is intent in showing his care and concern for every individual sheep that he's purchased with his blood. Every one. So he says, give careful attention to your thoughts to make sure that there's not one single sheep amongst Christ's flock that you've elevated yourself above so that when you think about them, it's to think down, to think lowly, to reckon poorly of them. Whenever they come into your mind, you just sort of mentally, if not physically, roll your eyes. Oh, that one. That's despising. Jesus said, don't do it, not to one. Do you despise any of Christ's sheep? Have you so elevated yourself? That would be your way of doing things. Your Christian walk. Your opinion on matters. Your giftedness in the congregation. Have you so elevated yourself that when you think of anybody else in the assembly, any other Christian, you tend to think down of them? Do you despise any of Christ's Sheep. I'll tell you this, your spouse knows. Your spouse knows. Because this will be that individual or that family that you talk about in a derogatory manner. Behind closed doors, you've spoken poorly of others and your spouse knows it. Right now, you've got husbands and wives in the room and they're thinking, I know he's done it. 
she knows I've done it. He knows I've done it. They know you're guilty of this. And even worse, God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, knows what you've said or what you've thought about another brother or sister. He was there when you did it. Christ says, be careful that you don't do this. Why? Because when you do that, I take it as if you're doing it to me. He says in verse 10, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve the saints of God. God's burning, fiery servants commissioned to do His will. We always point to the one who killed 185,000 Assyrians to illustrate their mighty power, the mighty power of one angel. These angels that go into the presence of the Almighty to receive their orders, and then they come back down to serve and minister to the saints, administering the will of God on the earth, carrying out His will amongst His church, serving His church. Do you think it's wise to set yourself up against another Christian, knowing that it's these angels who are watching after them? No. To despise a Christian is to oppose God who loves every single one of His sheep. And He's commissioned His holy angels to care for every single one. And then He gives an illustration by way of comparison to show the positive aspect of this, compar- this compassion. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. Just as that shepherd shows this concern for every individual sheep, not neglecting one, if it's this sheep, I'll go and find them. If it's that sheep, I'll go and find it. Every one of them, he says... So, verse 14, it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And the word so could be translated thus or in this way, in this manner. Just like I just told you in the parable of the shepherd, in that same way, God the Father, like a shepherd, has compassion on every single individual sheep. And if that sheep wanders, He'll go and get them. If this sheep wanders, He'll go and get them. There are no expendable sheep. There are no throwaways in Christ's flock. Our Father does not see the safety of the multitude as more significant than the safety of one. They're all His sheep. Now you might say, well, I love the church for the most part, but that one person, that one family, I just, there's something about them. I I just, I, I can't endure them. You've set yourself against God, against Christ, against His holy angels. My suggestion would be, rethink your position. Again, you're pushing against a wall that you can't move. There must be compassion in the church for all the saints. We must be humble. We must be righteous. There must be compassion. Number four, there must be reconciliation. Reconciliation. A healthy church 
will be compromised of members who want, want reconciliation. Where there is humility and righteousness and compassion, there will be a desire for reconciliation in the case of a known sin. Where there is no compassion, which will be evidence in the fact that people don't want reconciliation, where there is no compassion, we can be sure that any appearance of righteousness is merely a show. It's a self-exalting mirage. In other words, opposing a public sin without seeking reconciliation is a farce. It's a fake. It's a show to make one person look righteous and the other unrighteous. It's not real. It's not real righteousness. Humility leads to a godly compassion which produces a disdain for sin and a disdain for the animosity that might exist between brothers and sisters. So if I'm humble and I'm compassionate and there's sin between brothers and sisters, I want it gone. I want to fix it. I want to make it right. I want reconciliation. Some people are fine to be at odds with other people because they're right in their own eyes and the other people are wrong in their own eyes. They are despising another sheep. And they don't want to reconcile with sinners. They see themselves actually as more pious for not seeking reconciliation. It's virtue signaling. I'm holy and I don't reconcile with sinners. Sorry. Again, this is why humility lays at the root of all of this. There must be humility. A lowering of ourselves in our own eyes. Notice first the context of reconciliation, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, your brother, this is a fellow Christian, one you are not allowed to despise, one you are not allowed to put a stumbling block in his path. A fellow Christian, we could say a fellow member with you in the church, a brother. Moving outward from there, it would also apply in, insofar as it might. But it begins in the church. If your brother sins against you, breaks God's law against you. The sin in question here is one that is a personal sin acted by one brother in the church or sister against another brother or sister in the church. That's the context of this point on reconciliation. A brother or sister has sinned against another brother or sister. This is not just general sinning. That's actually easier to deal with usually. This is a personal matter. One brother has sinned against another. Someone sins against you personally. Or you sin against somebody else. But the language here, if your brother sins against you. So get this. In, this, in the context of reconciliation, they are the offender and you are the offended. You did nothing, they acted in sin. You are guiltless, you're innocent. They are guilty. Okay? Your brother has sinned against you. Now, what does the humble, godly, compassionate church member do when they are completely innocent and someone has sinned against them? 
go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Be going. Move toward them. What the word means. Take your physical body, get it close to their physical body. Go to them. The offended party has the obligation and the burden to go to the offender. The burden of God's word. God says, I notice that you're innocent in this matter. So then it is you who must act. Go to the offender. What do you do? Tell him his fault. Literally reprove or rebuke him. Expose his wrong to him. Speak so as to bring the sin to light and help him to see the error of his ways. Help him to see that he has sinned. Now, if someone has sinned against you, while it might be uncomfortable, this is actually really easy. Very simple. Take the Word of God, schedule a meeting, sit down with them, describe the facts of what they did to you, go to the Scriptures, show them that it is a sin against God's law that they've done that, and say... I wanted to bring this to your attention. I desire reconciliation. I don't want any sin to exist between us. I'm bringing it to you to show you that if you'll acknowledge this and confess, it's done. I just want to reconcile. It's over. My presence here is to show you that this is the stopping point if you'll hear me out. And it goes no further. And how is this to be done? How does the humble, godly, compassionate saint who's hungry for, hungry for reconciliation go about reproving this personal, private sin? Go to him between you and him alone. How many people are at this first meeting? Two. Two people. You go alone. Between you and him alone. Now why is this the case? Several reasons. I would say first, or... or in a list. You don't desire a show. If you're hungry for reconciliation, you don't need to take anybody else because you don't care if anybody else knows. You're not interested in, in making this thing big. You're not trying to humiliate them before others or even between the two of you. You're not trying to let everybody know that you've been wronged. It doesn't matter if anybody else knows. Now, when these things are a legitimate concern, personal approaches will be avoided. In other words, in a, in a church where the atmosphere is, is such that people have reason to believe that if a person is coming to me privately, five other people already know. Or the elders already know. Or it doesn't matter what I say at this point, it's going to get out later that I sinned against them. If those things are legitimate concerns, people are not going to want to go privately to one another because it's never going to be met well. It's never going to be received well. When you have a church where the atmosphere is private sins are dealt privately and forgotten and never addressed again, never brought up, and somebody comes to you privately and reveals a sin, you don't immediately begin to think, who knows? You don't immediately begin to think, well, the elders probably know. You don't immediately begin to think, well, if I confess this sin, everybody's going to know that I've done this. You don't think that because you know this person has come to me privately. This person is doing what Christ has commanded. The last thing I have to worry about is that anybody outside of this conversation is going to know what's happening here. 
And moving forward from here, it is forgotten. So it says a lot about the atmosphere of a church when people won't go to the person that has offended them, the sinner, for whatever reason. When you go like this, when you go alone, it's because your only concern is reconciliation. And pride will always be the enemy of these things happening. I don't want to go because this. I don't want to confess sin because this. If I admit it, then you'll tell. And we're, we're, we're afraid that somebody might find out we're sinners. And that's why this doesn't happen. Your only concern is reconciliation. And guess what? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've profited. You've won your brother. You've come out ahead. You've brought them back to you. You've, you have them as a reconciled brother. This is like a prize that he's putting forward. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now I wonder how many of us think like that. Pride is, is, is sneaky here as well. When someone sins against you in the church, are you concerned about being reconciled? Or really more about others knowing what they did to you? Are you interested in reconciliation? Or are you totally fine with animosity? They sinned against me, who cares? That's on them. I'll let it, let it be. That, that's not pious if there is a legitimate sin between brothers and sisters. In our pride, a lot of times we don't want reconciliation. If I go to them, it's, it's Jonah. If I go to them and show them their sin and they repent, I know good and well you'll forgive them and I'll just have to move on. And I don't want to. It's pride. We like downthinking. We like knowing I've got a sin that I can hold over this person. Because it makes us feel good. Are you interested in reconciliation? Do you thrive off of standing your ground in conflict? Do you love, or are you devoted to anyone in this church enough to even have concern about the ongoing state of affairs? As a pastor, here's, here's something that concerns me. I'm afraid that there are some here who are simply here because there's nowhere else to go. And you would be convicted if you didn't go to church. And so this is where your vehicle parks on Sundays until a better option comes available or until something happens that you feel is finally significant reason enough, grounds enough to leave and go to the next church, the next Sunday morning parking lot. There's no concern for the body. That's not church membership. This is Again, this is not where we decided to meet today. This is a body. This is a meeting of a religious order. A group of people covenanted together. Humans. And if that's the way you think, when there's animosity, you say, I don't want this. This is a body. I can't have sin between us. Others, they say, I strike one. We get to three strikes and I'm out. Keeping a record. Strike two. All right, I'm about to go. That's the way they think about the church, and that ought not to be. True saints in healthy churches seek reconciliation. When someone expresses outrage at sin, but makes no effort to seek reconciliation, that outrage, again, is a smoke and mirrors show meant to paint that person as righteous, even though they lack the one virtue that upholds all others. Love. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This type of person who wants to reveal sin and act outraged at sin, but they don't love the brothers, it's just a clang, 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 and eventually people say, that's just their clang and that's what they do. There's no love. There must be compassionate devotion to the body which seeks reconciliation. A healthy church is not one where there's never any conflict and no one ever sins. A healthy church is one where when these things happen, and they will, its members are quick to make it right. We've got to make reconciliation. We've got to get this right. We've got to learn our lesson and move forward. There's humility, there's righteousness, there's compassion, there's reconciliation. Then number five, there's discipline in 16 to 20. Discipline. Every true church of Christ has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven in order to welcome those who exhibit the true signs of saving faith and remove those who do not. The keys, as we know, have been given to the church, not the family. Not the individual. Not the elders. The church. The keys are given to the church. Now I do think it's interesting that if you were to survey a broad number of evangelicals and you were to say, you know, what are the, what are the pertinent passages in the New Testament on church discipline? Most of them would say 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18. So okay, what's... Tell me about 1 Corinthians 5. Well, the whole chapter is, is really just dealing with that adulterous man sleeping with his mother-in-law or stepmom, whatever. Okay, tell me about Matthew 18. What's, what's happening in that chapter? They would say, well, all I really know about the part about where two or three are gathered, you know. They wouldn't be able to tell you all of these other things that surround discipline, that precede it and follow it. We know, and that's very telling, by the way. Yeah. We know very little of humility. We know little of our of a hatred, a true hatred for our own sins. We know very little about compassion. We care little for reconciliation. And yet we know exactly where to go if we want to give somebody the boot. And so it's important to keep in mind that this portion on church discipline from the mouth of Christ is couched within this larger discipline. Discipline, then, is preceded by a pursuit of reconciliation and it is predicated on church authority. Discipline is not preceded by an individual feeling like somebody is sinful. That's not it. That won't cut it. It's not predicated on the opinions of individuals or families or elders. It's predicated on church authority. First, a pursuit of reconciliation. Formal church discipline is preceded by this pursuit of reconciliation. We've already seen the first step in that process, the personal, private approach. If they heed that call, that personal approach, that finishes it, it's over, move on like it never happened. If it gets brought up again, you're in sin. It's done. But, if, verse 16, if he does not listen... 
Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established on, by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it's just amazing how persistent the humble, godly, compassionate saint seeks reconciliation. They go privately. They didn't listen. Well, i got to find somebody else. Hey, will you come with me? I'm trying to reconcile. Oh, they didn't listen. Well, let's go get the whole church. Let's get the church after them. I want to reconcile. Persistent. And at every point within this scheme, until the very last one, if they listen, you gain your brother. Persistence. Seeking after them. They're, they're willing to go through so much in order to have the offender back. So they take others. Take one or two others along with you. Get other people involved. They don't listen, tell it to the church, the broader congregation. Now this doesn't have to mean, you know, you raise your hand in the worship service and stand up and say, I wanted to bring a, a charge. Although, historically, that has happened many times and has often been how it's worked out. It might not be every individual of the whole assembly. It might be, as we've seen in the past, maybe you gather all of the men together to approach a man. Maybe you gather all of the ladies together to approach a woman. And within those family units, the information will get out and the church will know what's going on. <coughs> but you tell it to the church. And it says if he refuses to listen even to the church, that means that that broader section of the church, if not the whole church, has also sought reconciliation. It's at this point, often, that the elders get involved. At this point. Until this point, tell it to the church. There's no reason for the elders to be involved. Church discipline is not elder discipline. It is not the job of the elders to walk through this process for anybody. <clears throat> every member of the church, every Christian has the same duty. He does not have, make any reference to get the elders to go between them. That's not what he says. Now, taking that into consideration, it's like those parents in the Old Covenant whose son was rebellious and they're thinking, I need to go tell the elders. I need to go tell the assembly. But if I do that and it's found out, I've got to throw the first stone. That, that really makes you rethink how grave and severe the offense might be. And a lot of times we learn, maybe it's not as offensive as I thought it was. And maybe I should just get over it. Maybe I should move on. Maybe, maybe I'm going to be driven to a deeper study of the Scripture so that I can find out, maybe this person didn't really sin against me. Maybe they just did something that I don't like. Or they did it in a way that I wouldn't do it. That's not a sin. You, you begin to think through these things a little more deeply. But the problem is that many people desire to make their own standing in the kingdom look so much higher than others that they can't let little offenses go. They can't overlook little things. At the same time, most of them don't have the fortitude or the backbone to actually go to the person and present the case... And so what do they do? They go to other people. Or they go to the elders rather than the offender. I'm, I gotta, I gotta, we'll talk about that tonight. Every member of the church has covenanted to do these things. Matthew 18. Not just the elders. Every member has covenanted. You've signed your name. I will do these things. Not I will get the elders to do these things for me. So it's preceded by 
the pursuit of reconciliation, and it's predicated on church authority. Not elder authority, church authority. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, treat him as though he's a Gentile and a tax collector. Why? Because he's acting like a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat him as reprobate. Treat him as a lost person. A person who will not heed correction from their brothers and sisters in Christ is not giving evidence that they've been converted. And we don't have to be ashamed of this. The New Testament church is not constituted by people who are unregenerate. If you're, if you're not regenerate or if you're evidencing yourself to be unregenerate or you're not living like a Christian person, this is not the place for you when it comes to membership. You need to come and hear the gospel and be saved. But this, this shouldn't be offensive to us. It's sad to us because we, want, we, we long to see our churches filled. We want to people to come here, not just to fill pews, but to be saved. And here's where we see that reference to church authority. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, notice the parallels, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered, where? On earth, in my name. There am I among them, the Christ by His Spirit who has ascended into the heavens. He's with those gathered saints on the earth. That's the authority of the church. Christ in her midst. And the language here takes us back to chapter 16 where Christ promised to give the keys of the kingdom to the church as they're represented by the disciples. Every true church, every true local church has this Christ-given authority to act with His authority, His heavenly authority, on the earth. That is assuming that the actions have been carried out in humility, in godliness, in compassion, following a pursuit of reconciliation, that all of the facts of the matters have been established, that truth is prevailing and not lies. Those who spurn the pleadings of the church and ignore efforts to reconcile are to be considered reprobate until they prove themselves otherwise. Treated as a Gentile and a tax collector until they prove otherwise. And that leads us to the fifth or the sixth trait of a healthy church forgiveness. Forgiveness. And this is where. I think it, it is very interesting. I think it's safe to assume that Peter was probably pretty heavily involved in that argument at the beginning. Knowing the way he spoke and the way he acted. He's just heard this entire discourse. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Peter is thinking in his own mind, as most people do today, I'm the preeminent apostle. So he's just heard all of this. Well, you need to turn and humble yourselves and become like children. And you need to hate your own sin. And you need to be compassionate for every one of Christ's sheep. And you need to seek reconciliation. And if in all of these situations and in all of these, these things have been exhausted, they still don't return, then, then you can disassociate. 
And Peter responds. Very typical, I think, of Peter. A very typical reaction by those who have not yet crossed the bridge of humility. Their first reaction, like Peter's, is to question, How long, O Lord, must I be required to endure such, such hostility from sinners in the church? Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Me, Lord? Sin against me? How much could I possibly be required to endure from this erring brother? Surely, it couldn't be more than seven times. We can imagine Peter's thoughts. Can't be more than seven times. After all, I've, I can't be seen as a pushover. I can't be seen as weak. I can't be thought of having a low view of the sins of others. I've already spent so much time making sure that everybody knows how I feel about the sins of others. Seven times max, right? Christ's answer, I, did, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The point he's getting at, again, it's hyperbolic. The point is over and over and over and over and over and over and over. There's no end to the forgiveness that we are expected to mete out to others. We can think of it this way. When Christ no longer has any need to forgive you, then you can stop forgiving others. Christ then gives this parable to explain that exact point. Beginning at verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. An amount that we cannot imagine. An indescribable amount. It's not possible for a person to pay back this debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his, his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He can't pay everything. Infinite patience could not allow for this man to pay everything. It's not possible. And, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Out of pity. You're good. You're good to go. Wow. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants appear, like him, who owed him a hundred denarii, far less of an amount, a meager amount. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. He'll never pay it. He's in jail forever. The first servant is forgiven an insurmountable debt, more than he could ever pay. This is meant to show us how we have been forgiven by God in Christ. Our King has forgiven us a debt of sin that with a million lifetimes we could never pay back. Because we pled with Him, have mercy upon me a sinner. He says, you're forgiven, you're released, it's done, it's forgotten. But then that same servant, having been forgiven, refuses to forgive a much smaller debt. This is an illustration of what it's like when we who have sinned against Almighty God and have been forgiven at the idea of forgiving another sinner over and over and over again. Even as I said it earlier, over and over and over and over, you begin to get impatient. We get the point. That's too much. Stop saying it. Let's just move on. How are we to forgive? Are we to forgive somebody until we've satisfied a quota? And we can say, there it was, maxed out at 7, maxed out at 11. No. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You forgive others the way you have been forgiven. If we've been forgiven in this way, how much more should we be willing to forgive over and over and over again? Christ gives this warning. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Remember, He delivered him to the jailers, literally the torturers. That's what God will do to you if you don't forgive your brother. Willingness to forgive is evidence that you've been forgiven. This is why Christ teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. How many of us are willing to pray that prayer in earnest before God? In the name of your Son, forgive me. I'm asking for forgiveness of my sins in an exact parallel to the way I've forgiven other people of their sins. No more, no less. How many of us are willing to pray that in earnest? <clears throat> Christ said of the prostitute, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Unwillingness to forgive is evidence that you haven't been forgiven. Humble, righteous, compassionate, reconciling love will allow for repeated offenses where there is a true listening to reproof and correction. The matter of discipline is preceded by pursuit of reconciliation and followed by a parable on forgiveness. Why? Because we believe in repentance. Any view of church discipline or church authority that ignores the command to forgive, that ignores the reality of ongoing repentance and sanctification in the life of every Christian is unchristian. We believe in repentance. We believe in sanctification. We believe in forgiveness. Any view of discipline that ignores all of that, it's not biblical discipline. Those who are humble like children 
who are serious about practical holiness, who are compassionate, who seek reconciliation as they've been reconciled, who want to forgive as they have been forgiven, are true sons and daughters of the kingdom. These are the ones who will shine like stars in the heavens. They constitute healthy, vibrant churches. These are the kind of churches God loves to use, where the Spirit blesses, where God feels free reign to work amongst these people. Those who are prideful, self-righteous, cold-hearted, murmuring, gossiping, and unwilling to forgive, prove that they have no place in Christ's kingdom and no place in His church. The Apostle John says, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says... I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. You don't love God. You're lying. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen.